so now we'll go to the actual form of presentation. So this is a very quick overview of hepatitis C, where it came from, how it got here, and what we're doing about it. And then we go into the more details in the latter part. So uh, you've already seen the disclosures. So the purpose of this is to list the different types of genotypes, how to stage HCV infection, to uh, recall the uh, presentation of advanced disease, although Dr. Peters will go into that in much more detail, describe the emerging treatments, and again, that will be put into practice with Dr. Marx's talk and uh, the changes to the guidelines, uh, which is and what the guidelines are. A lot of you know this already, but uh, let's, let's start with a question. Which, of the, which test most accurately stages liver fibrosis? Go ahead and vote. <laughs> Often at the same time. Okay, the majority of you got this correct. Um, actually, the, the uh, fiber scan really approximates a liver biopsy pretty darn well. Uh, liver biopsy is the gold standard. We just don't do them much anymore for kind of obvious reasons since especially the fiber scan. We'll talk about fiber sure and APRI in a, in a bit. Um, what percentage of patients with chronic HCV develop cirrhosis over 30 years? They get infected today, 30 years from now, what proportion of those who have chronic, not the ones who cleared, but the ones who have chronic HCV will go on to develop cirrhosis? Go ahead and vote. Right, so it's really about 20 to 50%. Uh, and we'll go through that a little bit more. So the majority perhaps don't. Here's the problem. You can't look at a patient a priori and say at the time of infection they will go on or they won't go on to develop cirrhosis, or to what degree their liver fibrosis will progress. There are factors that can contribute to more rapid progression, but it's not an assured thing. For example, somebody who's chronically drinking alcohol while they are hepatitis C infected, yeah, they're at higher risk for developing fibrosis from the double hit, but that doesn't mean they will all go on to develop cirrhosis. And then which is the most common genotype of HCV in the United States? Go ahead and vote. It's a little bit like the Kentucky Derby where you have the field. You know, you can vet for the horses, and then when they run out of gates, it is field. You get five and six for one vote, so that's pretty cool. That's what you want to do. Not much to talk about there. Okay. Yeah, and that was correct. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go through this very quickly. Epidemiology. Um, hepatitis C is about 170 million people around the world, many more than with HIV. And in the United States, it's about three to four million. And hopefully that number is just beginning to drop because we're curing people. Um, but you can see some areas of uh, Africa and Asia that are pretty heavily hit. Egypt has a, about 15% or more of their population is infected. It's mostly actually genotype four. As you can see here, the proportion of which genotype that's most prevalent um, is, is on, uh, depicted here. And as we t just alluded to, um, U.S. is mostly genotype 1. I mentioned Egypt with genotype 4, but it varies around the world, genotype 3 here and that part of Asia, et cetera. And it used to be that the genotypes were really, really important in distinguishing which direct acting agent to use to treat. Um, that's still kind of at play for some of the drugs, but, but some of the newer drugs are pan-genotypic, so they'll work relatively equally well regardless of the genotype. And just like with HIV, there's a treatment cascade. 
And just like with HIV, um, there's a lot of people who have hepatitis C that don't know it. So widespread testing, all the stuff that you've learned in your experience with HIV applies directly. So people that, I think everybody in this room pretty much, who's done HIV care, picking up the principles of hepatitis C is, is like a logical next step. And it's pretty easy, uh, including all types of things and uh, direct acting agents or nucleosides and uh, there's non-nukes and there's protease inhibitors and that type of thing. So that translates as well this whole co concept that we need to get out there and aggressively uh, identify people, get them into care, treat them. And the difference, of course, is that you can cure folks with hepatitis C now as, um, with as little as eight weeks of therapy, which is really, really cool. The reason why it's important is because this didn't come through totally well, but this is about 2018. And what you're seeing here is the number of people with cirrhosis that are going to be happening, uh, developing that over the next 20 uh, years or so. So if we intervene now, we can bend this curve a little bit like the 90-90-90 that we talk about. I'm not sure what happened to my slides, but it's okay. Natural history, we've already talked about this a little bit. Once somebody's exposed and infected, about 15% of people will clear it on their own within six months. That's their immune system wiping it out. And the way you know that is that their hepatitis C antibody will be positive, but you can't detect any HCV RNA because it's not there. It's gone. They've cured themselves. What we're really going to be focused on most today are the people with chronic hepatitis C. And again, a lot of folks just have a stable infection. There may be some minimal scarring or moderate scarring, but about 20, it could be up to 40, 50 percent of people over 30 years will go on to develop cirrhosis. And once they do that, some of them just progress slowly. And as Dr. Peters will talk about, a large, a fair number will go on to develop end-stage liver disease or even develop hepatocellular carcinoma and either die or need a transplant. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are things that can accelerate the fibrosis. I mentioned alcohol, but steatohepatitis also uh, is a cofactor for more uh, advanced progression of fibrosis. HIV co-infection, a little bit faster fibro uh, fibrosis and hepatitis B. So lots of reasons to check all this. In our HIV populations, we do this. We look for these things routinely, although fatty liver, we don't look for quite as much with HIV, although a lot of people who have had nucleoside exposures from the past, those who were treated in the 90s, a lot of them will have fatty liver disease from uh, the DD drugs, uh, DDI, DDC, and to some degree AZT. For staging, um, this, these are the liver biopsies. This is a normal liver for the most part, some fat globules there. Uh, but this is cirrhosis, and Dr. Peters will talk much more about this, but you have uh, bridging, and uh, this is pre-cirrhosis, if you will. It looks like it's headed that way, um, as will be talked about. When you do either a fiber scan or a liver biopsy, you're just getting a small look, uh, and, it's, and it's very difficult sometimes to know if that's representative. If you just happen to go in a, in a direction with the biopsy that missed uh, some of this, you might get a picture that looks like this and actually be underscoring. Um, and, and, but if you do see this, you, you've got, you're dealing with cirrhosis there. So what are the ways we can assess fibrosis if we don't do liver biopsies? And let's say you don't have a fiber scan. There are some tests that you can do. Some of them are really pretty easy. This is the Fib4, and it takes age and platelet count 
AST and ALT, and we all have that. And then there's a formula, and there's little, you can go online and plug in the numbers and it can give you your score. And with a FIB4, if that sum or that product is less than 1.45, that's a really good sign. That's a really good sign. If it's greater than 3.25, that's not so good. That means they have a, about a 65% chance of being F3-4. Now, right away, you can see it's not a perfect test, or it's okay, and it's kind of like putting your finger in the wind and trying to figure out the, the wind velocity or something. But it's at least better than not having anything. A lot of um, what I learned from the hepatologist is just to look at the platelet count can be really, really helpful. If the platelet count's 200,000, 250,000, you kind of go, eh, it's unlikely they have cirrhosis. The platelet count, though, is 150. A lot of us say, well, that's normal. Well, not quite. And so that could be a hint that there would be some degree of, of fibrosis. But this is one test. The APRI is another test that's uh, pretty good, and it's a little bit more simple. You just need the platelet count and the AST. You take the AST and you divide it by the upper limit of normal, and then you divide that by the platelet count. And if your number is less than 0.5, it's good, and if it's greater than 1.05, it implies badness. And of course, the higher, the more likely that there's going to be some fibrosis there. There's another uh, test that you can get called FibroSure. It's a mixture of five different markers that they put into a magic formula and charge you money for. Um, and uh, they give you back uh, a score there, and they also can, it's usually on the score from 0 to 1, 1.0. And if it gets above 0.7, then you're headed into F4 land. If it's below 0.2, you feel pretty good that there's not much scarring going on. And that test, I don't know, what does it run around about $100 or something like More than that. Well, so they, they realize they have something going, yeah. But this is a, a really a great test I've found. Uh, and if you have the machine, it's fabulous. If you don't have it, well, it's 120 some odd thousand dollars to get. So if you have hepatologists in your neighborhood, great. Uh, some radiology departments will do this with ultrasound uh, elastography, which is kind of cool in a way because you get both an ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound, and you get your elastography result. There's some subtle differences. Um, in terms of where the cut points are for these, but you can work that out with your local radiologist. But if you have this, it's really nice. So let me describe briefly how it works. You have this probe, and it sends out uh, a sound wave, and you put it up in the midclavicular line, and this you hit a button, and it goes boop, boop, and it sends this shock wave through the liver. And then it, it detects the speed with which that wave goes. So something, if it's going through material that is very soft and spongy like a normal liver, it takes a little bit longer to go through than if it's cirrhotic where it's scarred down and sort of more like, not exactly concrete, but just to make the analogy, it, it zips through the, um, the liver much more rapidly. And this test is very good at distinguishing the speed with which that shock wave goes, and it gives you back a score. And that score, the speed of that, is translated into a number. And again, if it's less than five, it's measured in something called kilopascals. If it's less than five, that's generally good news. If it's greater than 12 and a half or 13, that usually means uh, cirrhosis. And anywhere in between is in between. So you can do some uh, 
association, but it really is quite good, and I've found it really helpful. A common question is, well, how often does that, um, how else is there discordance between, say, the APRI and the FIBRO scan? And that can happen, and then you're left kind of making a judgment. My personal feeling is that I lean towards the worse score. So if the FIBRO scan is worse, I'll go with that. If fiber sure is worse, I'm a little bit kind of more wishy-washy, but I'm going to lean that way. When Dr. Peters gets to her talk, um, you're going to hear that if somebody's F4, if they have cirrhosis, even if it's compensated, there are things that we're going to have to do chronically even after they're cured, which is follow them over time for hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's, it's very important. Another reason it's important to know what the fibrosis score is, whether they're F0 to F4, which is cirrhosis, is that when somebody does have cirrhosis, then you're going to want to maybe use either a different regimen or you might have to, depending on the situation, add ribavirin. They don't do that much anymore, but or the length of therapy might change. So this is a critical component. Where genotype is becoming a little bit less important because of the pan-genotypic drugs, the duration of therapy could well vary. And Dr. Uh, Marks will go into that when we talk about initial therapy. So knowing this is really important. So very quickly, um, just like HIV, it's about a nine and a half kilobase RNA virus. It, it, the similarities are striking, even though they're different families. This is a this is a flavivirus, and HIV is. Oh yes, please, please yes, interruptions. It's a workshop. I have never, I don't think I've ordered a liver biopsy in more than three and a half years. You, you do them, so you've probably done them more. So this virus is uh, uh, nine and a half uh, kilobases or thereabouts. And the key areas to know about is this NS3 region, the NS5A, and the NS5B. Why? Because protease inhibitors act here at the NS3-4A area. NS5A inhibitors act on NS5A, imagine that. And then in NS5B, you've got both the nucleoside and the non-nucleoside. But isn't it amazing how this is exactly the same terminology? It's not totally it's an accident. Um, it, it is sort of an accident of nature that these are the coding regions, and, but viruses do what viruses do. The other thing uh, that, that is important um, is that the way these drugs were developed was a lot of times by the same companies that created the HIV drugs, and it was really a pretty easy shift to start heading off into the direction of working on hepatitis C. And I think we're really at the verge of a revolution in viral therapy, antiviral therapy, much like we were in the 50s and 60s with antibacterial therapy. So expect a lot more viral diseases that we used to just shrug our shoulders and say, can't do much about that, we'll start being able to treat probably in the next decade. Things like Ebola or cytomegalovirus is going to be easier to treat. Um, maybe even the common cold, who knows. So this is one of Christy Marx's main points. I love this, so I stole it from you. I borrowed it, or uh, I've given you credit. But you can tell where the, where the drugs work by their suffix. So Previr is a protease, or the NS34A, Previr. So Semeprevir, right? Asphere, which happens to be one of my favorite terms, is NS5A, so Ledepasvir, right? Or Velpatasvir, and then Buvir, like Sofosbuvir. 
and that's the NS5B. But Dr. Marks will talk more about that. I'm just laying the, laying the groundwork. And then you can see these are all the currently available drugs. This is more for your reference, but this summarizes where they work. And almost all of them um, work at an S5A. There's a missing dot here. No, yeah, it should be right there for this one. Viral kinetics used to be important. They're not important anymore. <laughs> all right, I'll back up. When we used to use interferon, because it was so toxic and it had to go on for 48 weeks, the speed with which the virus cleared told us the likelihood of whether it was going to be cured or not. Because if it didn't drop to a certain undetectable level within four weeks, for example, then you knew it was futile to continue poisoning, or did I say that? Uh, treating someone for another uh, 40 weeks with this toxic regimen. It doesn't matter. With, with the new DAA agents that you're, that you're using or going to be using, um, the viral kinetics drop rapidly, like, just like with HIV. HIV replicates at about 1 to 10 billion viruses a day. Hepatitis C replicates at 100 billion to a trillion viruses a day. And the half-life is very short. So when you stop the replication cold, the viral load drops dramatically. So it'll go from millions of copies to undetectable, usually in four weeks. And you can see huge drops just within a week or two, though you're not going to be testing uh, unless you're doing some sort of research project. Um, do you need to check at four weeks to confirm? No. You don't need to do it. You can if you want to. But you're probably not going to do anything different. Because even if it's detectable at four weeks, there's still a pretty good chance they'll be cured at the end of eight or 12 weeks, especially 12 weeks. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So, but one thing that we did keep was this notion of about three months after you have end of therapy, you bring them back, and this is very important, you bring them back three months later, I like to go closer to four to six months later uh, for what's called an SVR check. And at that point, you'll check the viral load and it's undetectable, you declare them cured and send them out. Although Dr. Peters will talk about uh, the rare situation where you can have a three month negative test, you think you know, as an SVR is zero or undetectable, where there still can be some relapse, although it's less than 1%. Current treatments, Dr. Marks will go into this much more, but I just think the fact that this slide is so populated is really cool. Because not only are there a lot of options for us as treaters, the competition has driven the price of the drugs downward, and that's helped us all. Um, and I think if we're going to talk about eradication or elimination of hepatitis C from the United States, we have to find everyone, get them treated, and get them cured. Uh, a barrier to that was the finances. And so that's getting a little bit, a little bit better. Um, I think the slides uh, will be available to folks, Donna or Scott? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this will all be available to you. And this is just to show the remarkable success. If we looked at interferon with genotype 1A, you might have 30%, maybe at most 40% SVR. Look at that. And this is just with one of the earlier uh, regimens, which is soft decladosphere. Uh, remember, asphere, so it's an NS5A inhibitor with buvir, which is NS5B. Um, but it was pretty good. So interferon, bye-bye. See ya. I won't even say it was nice while it lasted. It wasn't nice at all. Bye. And 
Dr. Marks will go through the different regimens, but this, what I wanted to show here was, uh, this is our older data about three or four years ago, I guess. Um, but the question is, who, does, who are the people that are highest risk of not responding? And even though that non-response group might only be 3%, 4%, the things that contribute are black race, Hispanic ethnicity, men don't do as well overall as women, older folks, people that have a high BMI. We don't really check for IL-28B anymore, but those, if you did check, the non-CC genotype, those who have cirrhosis typically are a little bit more likely to not have success than those who don't have cirrhosis. This is becoming less important, the viral load greater than 800,000, higher uh, baseline ALT, and which genotype really depended on which drug, so this we can almost throw out. And treatment experience, um, again, we're having some success with the newer regimens. The reason I'm showing this is that when you have a lot of these factors put together, then you start, uh, this is multivariate, but when you have a lot of them together, if you have none of them, your, your success rate is here. You have one of them, your success rate. When you start getting four, five, and six of these factors together, you start to see some impact. So that's the reason I'm showing this, is that when you're looking at someone and you're trying to decide um, how to treat them, um, and especially if you're debating, is it eight weeks enough here? Maybe I should go to 12 um, for certain regimens. It, this can be helpful. The most important slide that I'm going to show you is this one. This is the website of the AASLD IDSA treatment guidelines. Uh, most, has everyone been to that site at least once? Yeah, it, it's phenomenal. I mean, it really is. Uh, you go up here, you hover your mouse over whatever you're looking for, the, the genotype pops up, you click on that, it goes to the page, it tells you what to do if they're uh, non-serotic or if they have compensated cirrhosis. Decompensated is a whole different thing. Um, and then you look at unique populations. It might be HIV co-infected populations, those with renal failure, et cetera. And it's, it's just, this is the website you need to know. It's just hcvguidelines.org. I'm going to talk later about resistance. Um, this is where there's another uh, breakdown in the similarities between HIV and hepatitis C. Resistance happens just like it does with hepatitis C drugs. It just doesn't have the same meaning. So you can have resistance and still use a drug that you would predict by HIV rules wouldn't work, and it actually can still work. So that's it gets a little dicey. We'll talk about that in a slide later. And this is these are the different genotypes. We're used to seeing these types of nomenclatures. Hepatologists had to sort of learn this for the first time with hepatitis C for the most part. Um, but, but we'll go into some details about this later. I think the take-home point is that a lot of the newer drugs, the resistance, even if it's present, doesn't seem to have much effect on the success rate. And this is what Dr. Peters will talk about. It usually was part of my intro talk, but we thought it was so important, uh, we, we pulled it out. And my final slide is this. These are euros, but it doesn't matter. One of our biggest barriers sometimes to getting treatment is how does it get paid for and who pays. and and we're getting, it's getting a little easier now that the prices have come down and the payers have kind of gotten over somewhat the sticker shock, but they've also started factoring in the fact that they're going to be treating this, um, whereas in the 2013, 2014 era, they had not 
actuarially determined or blocked out funding to pay for this, so they started uh, being very restrictive about what they allow. Medicaid programs in particular, New York is pretty generous. Uh, Alabama, not so much. And if, for example, if I'm going to treat somebody in Alabama with, uh, for hepatitis C on Medicaid, even if they have cirrhosis, I have to demonstrate a negative urine drug screen. That includes cannabis. And I have to demonstrate a negative alcohol level. Otherwise, I can't get the medicines paid for by Medicaid. It's pretty pathetic, really, really pathetic. It's, it's heartbreaking. So, you know, I rail against the machine and yell and scream, but I usually have to go to compassionate use programs to get people who really, really, really need it. So that's it. Questions on the first talk? All right, that was the orientation for, especially for those of you who haven't done this or are thinking about doing it. And now we'll start getting into hepatology for the non-hepatologist. <laughs>